Welcome to WeAreTechnology.com's User-Friendly 2.0 with host Bill Sickens, Technology Architect. And this is User-Friendly 2.0. I'm your host, Bill Sickens. We, you know, are going into, it's July, it's about to be August, getting kind of into the back half of the year already. It's amazing that we're here, but uh, we're moving along. We're going to have Black Hat coming up here in August. It's going to be a great event. and. Uh, Going to be checking that out again and seeing what they're coming up with for cybersecurity. Also, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to have a guest on that is going to be showing a black hat and specializes in mobile security. So it's going to be kind of cool to see what they're talking about. Cybersecurity is, of course, a very big deal, as it always has been. It's just getting more and more important. So seeing the direction that goes with uh, is something that I think is going to be very, very important and continue to be very, very important. This week, we've got a guest in the next segment. His name is Steve Kelly. He is going to be talking about a product they have that allows you to reuse scripts, and this has to do with source code. So we're going to be talking about programming in the next segment. A lot of questions are coming in about that because there's a lot of news out there that AI is going to take away all our jobs. And we've talked about that over the past couple of episodes, but there are, you know, like we've said, some changes coming up. And this is definitely going to be something that's going to be interesting to anybody that is concerned about these things. Bill Gretchen, welcome to the show. Hey there. Good to have you here this week. Is it hot enough for you? Yes. Too hot. Yeah. (laughs) That is the other question that a lot of listeners have been sending in. And it is definitely, I'll tell you, I think we're a little bit lucky up here. We actually, we were having a lot of heat too. And then over the weekend, we got some rain up in the Portland, Oregon area, and then it stopped, but we've been in the high 70s, low 80s since then, so I'm kind of really not complaining about that. It's well, been so we're... hot, we can see footprints in asphalt. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, you know, yeah, well, just all I can say is just try to stay cool. All right, well, on that cheery thought, what do we have in the news? Experts say decades of recycling hype has backfired dramatically. Okay, I'm not sure this is news. (laughs) No, but you know, I think I I keep running into stuff like this, and it's like we're told one thing, and then it seems like other things are happening. So maybe enlighten us as to what's going on. Well, you know, you've got a couple of different things here, and a lot of this actually has to do with marketing, and this goes back to the time when they started going into, you know, let's do recycling and get the recycling containers and all of these things in the right direction. But some of the numbers show that only between 5 and 10% of our plastic waste is actually recycled now, which is very, very low. And the other thing is, it's just because it has a recycling logo on it doesn't mean that it actually can be recycled, at least oh. in a way to be able to do it. There's a number in there and that references what it is. And they started stamping that on everything, just, oh, recycle. Well, I guess technically speaking, you could, but a lot of things, there's really no ability or no feasible ability to do it. And a few years ago, we used to export a lot of our recycle waste overseas. That stopped being an option. So it's really created a situation here. And what this comes down to is what do you do with these things? You go and have your coffee. And what do you do with the cup? Recycling, compost, or trash? The problem is it isn't something that usually can be recycled. So that cup at your coffee place, 
will probably have a thin plastic lining on the inside of the paper because it's for holding a hot beverage. But that means it can't be recycled as paper and they don't really have a system in place to be able to recycle it at all, you know. Um, So these type of things are going on and people are kind of getting sick of it because it is definitely people are willing to separate things and do all that kind of stuff. But when it comes to wash things so that it's clean. Yeah. And (laughs) then when it comes down to it, and there's some places that uh, they call it wishful recycling. That if you actually put something in the recycling bin that can't be recycled, they'll throw out the whole bin instead of sorting it out. And I know up here, there's some weird things that if you put your recycles in a bag and put the bag into the recycle bin, they just throw it in the trash. You have you can't bag it. So there's same like, here. Yeah. Yeah. So it's yeah, and you can't weird. put the plastic bags. You have to bring the plastic bags to places like Target or Walmart. But not long ago, I saw a news article that. Some of these uh, recyclings from Target and Walmart aren't going to be recycled. They're being thrown in the landfill. Yeah, I heard the same yeah. rumor for Kroger up here. Amazon, as a for example, says take them to Kroger and uh, which for us is Fred Meyer. For you, it would be Smith's mm-hmm. and there's partners, but same kind of thing. Now, normally those kind of plastics are used to make products like Trex, which is a outdoor decking, the, the plastic decking stuff. They make chairs yes. out of the parks. That's what I thought it was used for, but I heard too that they stopped using it because it degrades too fast now. Yeah, and that's and that's the whole thing. Plastic is really difficult to deal with. Now, paper and cardboard and those kind of products are different. Or glass. metal, glass. Yeah, maybe we should go back to glass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and well, you know, in a lot of places, uh, a lot of people are saying that type of thing. Now, the reason they use plastic is, let's say you have a product that's like shampoo. You wouldn't want that in a glass bottle because if you're in the bathroom taking a shower and it drops, you really don't want glass if you're barefoot. So right. there are some reasons like that that they but use the same. The mayonnaise things. jar can be glass. The uh, you know, again, you know, yeah. that's okay. Yeah, no, and I, I do <laughs> I mean, agree with you. It was, it's a value thing, you know. That was the problem. Because glass is expensive. Glass is but expensive. It's also, but it's recyclable. Yeah, real easy. <laughs> but the thing of it is, is it, it does come down to money. And that's the other thing with plastic, too. It actually costs less to make new plastic in a lot of con- uh, situations than it does to recycle. So now, when I was a little kid, obviously, back when you would say the Stone Age, um, they were they were just phasing out the idea of, you know, the milkman delivers milk to your house. Well, long before they used those um, cartons, they used to do these glass bottles. Right with the milk in it, and then you the people would leave the glass bottle in on their porch, and the milkman would trade the the used one for the brand new one filled with milk, and then they would obviously take those bottles back and wash them somehow. I well, it was the same thing for your Coke doing bottles, stuff like that. soda pop, yeah. all that kind of stuff, and and absolutely, and it's just you know the thing of it is is there has to be number one a motivation for stuff that can be recycled. So in Oregon, they have something called the bottle bill. And this is something that exists in other states, too, where you pay a deposit on single-use drink containers like your Pepsi bottle or your juice, you know, and that kind of thing. And then when you turn it in, you get it back. And we do have a much, much higher compliance on recycling those type of things than places that don't. But I would argue that I think there's more willing on the consumer end to turn these things over. It's it's the business end, it seems like. Yeah. They're not willing it it, Mm -hmm. because all of us are you know cleaning out our stuff separating it putting it in the recycle thing we need the other end to do their part we don't need five 
cents added to the cost of the bottle, we're willing to, to recycle it anyways. We don't need to have that money incentive. We just yeah. want the stuff to be taken and reused. It's just from a from a business perspective, which is what this comes down to, it does come down right. to money, unfortunately. And you know, that's where they're kind of going with all this kind of stuff. One of the best ways to dealing with plastic really is don't use it. Like you say, the glass jars. I know in a lot of places, including here, they're getting rid of the single use plastic bags. And yes, it is a pain when you go to the store and don't bring a bag and kind of forget about it. But once you get used to it, it does eliminate a lot of that waste. Mm-hmm. Um, especially mm-hmm. since the film from plastic bags can't usually be recycled in the same way that other plastic can. It's a separate process in of itself, you know, and it just, uh, you know, it's just one of these things, but yeah, at the end of the day, uh, I think this is going to kind of come to fruition now where they're going to have to do something because people are aware of it more and more that it is not, your recycling is not actually recycling it. And at the end of the day, you know, if you go to go to Starbucks or go to Dutch Brothers or something, bring a cup that you can have them fill a lot of you'll need to check with the local local location. But a lot of places will do that. If you're going to drink your coffee in the place, use a uh, they offer where you can actually get a cup that can be washed. You know, so there are some things you can do from that standpoint. But, yeah, this is a problem and it's going to be interesting to see what kind of a solution they come up with, if one at all. Southern California's longest-running newspaper files for bankruptcy. Yeah, and this is kind of a bummer. I mean, newspapers, you know, definitely there's a school of thought that these are obsolete. The paper in question is the Santa Barbara News Press. So this is in Southern California, and it's been published, I, I, I want to say, 150 years now uh, when they started. And they're actually doing a bankruptcy filing which means it's not a reorganization. The paper is going to go away. And we're seeing this in a lot of places as technology and things change. But I do think a big part of all this is just simply they're not doing it right. The idea of a paper newspaper, yeah, that's something that a lot of people don't want anymore. And it does create waste and all the rest of that. But the other side of it, too, is that there would be ways to be able to continue to deliver the news by these organizations. But they need to come up with a modern way to be able to distribute it. And that modern way is not, if you want to read an article, you have to buy a subscription. You know, that turns people off too. Uh So trying to figure out some kind of an idea in here, but you know, a lot of big companies and organizations that have existed for a long time don't do a very good job at transitioning into e-commerce and these type of things. An example of this is Sears, which really should have been Amazon. But they didn't do it right, you know. Well, like another one um, in Japan, the you go to a store and you buy a custom-made stamp. Like we sign paperwork with our names, right? They use a stamp, so everybody's stamp is unique. It's kept on a record from the store you buy it at. So if you lose it, you can go get the exact same thing back. But they're suffering because now we're doing a lot more e-signing, right? Oh, but to me, it's like okay. You have the design aspect. Why don't you modernize that and create a way to continue using these stamps digitally? Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely both. wants to. Yeah. Because you know, it's like, um, I can't really think of it, but I know there are things out there where it's like, they've transitioned that way to be digital, but it's for those who want a physical copy. Uh, books. There we go. Books. Good example. You know, we have digital copies, but it's some of us we go out and we're willing to spend a little extra to have a book in our hand. Mm-hmm. 
And it's just a a subject I hope Wizards of the Coast is listening to that because a lot of people feel that way. You know, it's uh, you want to have these things. And this would actually be a good use of something like a blockchain, your seals and all of that kind of thing to be able to issue them in a secured format like that. You could be able to do that, but have the digital version of it and still have the hard version of it if you needed it. I, I agree with you completely. I don't get the whole e-sign thing either because it's like you're going on and I'm electronically signing that this document. Well, I, I don't know. And I'm not you know speaking as an attorney or anything, but it would seem like if that was ever brought up in court, well, I don't know if that's my digital signature. Can you prove it? I mean, you know, it, it, yeah. it doesn't seem like it has the same capability. And I know that we need to do things in a way that works with the electronic stuff, but, you know, we're losing some of the, definitely the security and the ability to identify it. And Bill, like you say, bringing it into this modern era, but in a way that keeps the original process would make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. U.S. Navy commander tells Congress of small white UFO. So, you know, the whole UFO thing, and this is obviously a topic in of itself, but it seems like lately, there's been a lot more in the news from what would be considered more official respectable. sources, respectable, yeah, you know, like the Pentagon the and stuff. Yeah. Well, this is on the BBC and it's the U.S. Navy um, that's speaking about it is that, you know, something's going on. So, it, it you know, all I can say is that uh, I, I don't know. It's the world has changed so much and even the last 10 years, um, mm-hmm. you know, aliens, well, we'll see what happens. I mean. You know, hopefully they'll um, <laughs> be some way. Hopefully to... they're nice aliens. Yes, yes. <laughs> hey, you never know. I've seen plenty of sci-fi, and there, if anything, that proves there's good aliens. You know, like Thor on Stargate, and then there's um, well, <laughs> others, <laughs> scary ones. Elon Musk points new domain to Twitter, prepares to drop interim X logo, and before we get into that, I just want to say. You know, a lot of companies rebrand, and I'm going to f- say what a lot of people online have said. This was dumb. Well, everybody recognizes Twitter. Yeah, everybody recognizes Twitter. Yeah. And the bird had the, the idea of tweeting. I mean, you know, and the next question I have to ask from this is, do we, do we still tweet or is there a new term for that now? Like, there would almost have to be, <laughs> right? So it's, uh, yeah. yeah, you know, at the end of the day, and, and I, everybody I, that's heard me talk about this knows that my opinion is that social media is kind of... Um, uh, you know, I, I want to, don't want to say a thing of the past, but it certainly is not what it was 10 years ago. And, you know, as far as all of this kind of stuff goes, it's like the same thing changing from Facebook to Meta doesn't seem to have worked out quite as they expected either. Part, part of it because the Metaverse never really took off. And lawsuits. Yeah, you, you know, but at the end of the day, I, I also don't know if you could trademark an X. I mean, that's a question for a, for a trademark attorney, but that's an interesting thing too. And It's because the thing of it is, is also on this kind of stuff, you have threads on Facebook that was going to compete with Twitter and everybody was worked up about that. And they say that it's becoming unraveled. That's the word I used for it. It's not being kind of peaked when it started and and people aren't really adopting it. Now, TikTok is saying that they're going to have a function that where you can do just text posts, which would also compete with Twitter or X or whatever it is now. And at the end of the day, I, I, I don't know that the reality here is that this is even going to really matter all that much because it's just not what it once was. But uh, yeah, I think everybody's social media out. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it just, 
Uh, you know, it's just, I, and we've even seen it from our standpoint too. We, of course, have social media like like most, but you look at these traffic patterns. And two, three years ago, uh, you know, people were sending us social media and checking things out there. And now it's mostly back to the website, not mostly, but the majority. You know, yeah. So these things mm-hmm. do ebb and flow, but I don't know. Social media and Meta and X and all the rest of this, we'll see what happens. Activision Blizzard lays off esports staff as it faces potential dramatic changes for the Overwatch League. Okay, so Overwatch is a game for anybody that doesn't know. There's leagues that play this. Esports is this idea of playing video games in a competitive environment. It was coined by Nintendo a number of years ago. Uh, those cartridges are worth a lot of money now if you can find them for the old 8-bit mm-hmm. Nintendo for that. But at the end of the day, with all the changes, Activision Blizzard and the merger with Microsoft and some of the other things that are going on, is we're just seeing uh, you know a change in direction, not necessarily good. Bill, do you want to weigh in on that a little bit? Well, part of it too is is that even though they're doing an overhaul, it is indicative of the problem. Overwatch is kind of died for a lot of people because they brought out Overwatch 2, which was basically just a graphics overhaul, and they started adding a couple of new champions and stuff, but the way they're handling it, like, you have to buy the battle pass so you can get the new character, or you have to wait forever to get the new characters, so being competitive in those games, which are highly competitive, um, even privately, it's become a race and just over monetization of it. Yeah, and I, I think that's I think that's very true. And I don't think that's necessarily limited to Overwatch either. It's you know no. you're kind of seeing this a little bit across the board. And uh, uh, you know at the end of the day, there's a lot of adjustments being made. A, a relevant story to this too is that um, uh, CD Red that makes the um, Cyberpunk and uh, uh, what is a Witcher series and stuff. They're laying off about 7% of their workforce, just one example. Um, because again, a lot of this has changed. There's overstaffing. There's all kinds of different things going on. Activision Blizzard's probably been in the news the most lately just because of the merger, but it's certainly not just limited to that company. So if they buy another company, does it need to start with a C so they can have A, B, and C? Yeah, probably. It's just that, <laughs> although then, vision, yeah. Then they might have yeah, a problem yeah, with go. a certain <laughs> national network that's owned by Disney. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so a listener question that has come in, actually a couple of them, is one dealing with real estate. In fact, we covered this on Tech Wednesday this week. And it's the valuation of homes. Now, couple of years ago, you may remember in the news that Zillow would buy a house and you would go on and they give you a value on their website and then basically pay you that amount for your house. And it caused them a lot of problems because the values that they were paying was not what a lot of the houses they bought were actually worth. And that can cause problems. And there's other companies out there right now that do these type of things like Open Door and, and, uh, and different ones that you can go on and get a supposed price. So the question that's come in specifically on this is, are these valid? I mean, if you go on and get a value, is that what you're actually going to get for your home when you sell it? And, you know, when it comes down to it, there is a lot of different variables. And I know, Gretchen, you're learning about this right now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they come into being when you figure out the value of a home. And an algorithm can give you a rough idea, but historically, the value of your house is basically worth the comps in your neighborhood and then takes into consideration things like condition and 
features. Anybody that's worked with real estate has probably heard the term that it's possible to do what's called over-improving for an area, which means you spend more money on your property than you can get back out of it because the rest of the neighborhood doesn't support whatever it is you did. That would be like if you had a house in, let's say, a medium subdivision, and then you added a swimming pool and a granite driveway, and you were the only person to do that. Um, you would have a situation where you've spent more than you can sell the house for. So those type of things generally aren't played into these valuations. So a rough idea, maybe, but at the end of the day, it is something that does take a lot more research. So the other question is, what about even selling to these different sites that will give you an instant offer? And, you know, how does that work and how does that look? You know, the idea of e-commerce when you're buying homes or cars or bigger things like that can be a little bit different than just ordering something off of a website. And at the end of the day, that process also isn't quite as neat and clean as it may look. They will email you an offer based on whatever algorithm, but before they would pay you anything, they actually will want to do an interview. They want to get more information. They usually want you to take a video tour of your house. Generally speaking, if you get all the way into it, they're going to want to actually come out and see it. And the offer you get can be very different from the initial one that was set up and and sent online. And that's just kind of the case across the board with these things, you know. So the use of technology from that standpoint is a good thing for a general idea. But the other thing that we've been noticing, too, is there's a lot of cases where the information on a home or property that's listed is flat out wrong. Yeah, <laughs> like in these like on these sites like Zillow and you know, uh, even Redfin, you know, yeah. sometimes things are not quite right. And, you know, it's one thing if the house is sold in the past, you know, few years, even 10 years or so, the information's probably closer. But you have a lot of people that are original owner homes that are coming up on the market now that were built in the 60s and the 70s. They're either retiring and downsizing or have passed away and the family's selling them or, you know, whatever the case may be. And in those cases, it's much more difficult because there is really no basis. We've even run into some things where the information with the local recorder's office, like the assessor or whoever does that in a given jurisdiction is wrong and might list different square footage, less, you know, in some cases, which can drastically affect what the value is. And then you try to put your house on the market and don't know necessarily the correct information. And certainly you can't say, well, the official record show my house is a thousand square feet, but it's really 3000. Well, as a buyer, I certainly would have a problem with that. You know? Exactly. So in any event, the technology is there. It's not a bad thing, but it's certainly, in my opinion, the answer to that question shouldn't be something that you solely rely on to try to figure out the value of a house. Because if you do, you may end up finding there, you probably will end up finding that what you actually get and what it shows on the screen are two very different things. All right, we're going to be back after the break. We've got a great interview coming up, and we're going to be talking about programming. This is User-Friendly 2.0. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is User-Friendly 2.0. Check us out on social media, one user-friendly on Facebook and Twitter or Meta. You know what? Just check the website, userfriendlyshow.com. That's where you can find everything, and they may change their names, but we don't, so it makes it a lot easier. We're going to have a guest coming up here in a few minutes that is going to be talking about reusing script and programming, and this is actually an issue for non-programmers out there. Basically, what it comes down to is a situation where 
when you write software, then deploy it, you use what are called scripts for part of that process. And sometimes these scripts can take as much to program as the actual software itself. But generally speaking, they're one shot. So if you need to make changes on down the road or do something different, you have to write them again, which is not just the time to do the script, but it's the time to debug it and all the rest of that. So his company has a solution for this that sounds really interesting. We're going to be giving it a try, I think, for some of our clients as well. But a lot of questions that have come in and definitely something we've talked about here on the show a lot with AI and this idea that it's going to replace programmers and all that is really where is this industry going and what is it doing and what can you expect? And the reality is, is that pretty much any company out there is a technology company. And when you look at things these days, you're looking at that kind of a standpoint, even if the primary service of a company has nothing to do with technology, they're still going to use it one way or the other. And Bill and Gretchen, I know um, we've talked about this, but pretty much everything we interact with uses technology. And, uh, you know, we all know that. I think you guys have run into it. And I think you'd agree with that. Pretty much. Oh, yeah. I mean, you I've know. had to write scripts myself, you know, for things, but yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and scripts are a big part. I, you know, it, it, it is an interesting topic because you kind of think about this. Oh, what, you know, how's that important? Well, you know, it definitely, definitely is. So, um, you know, and to that end, I think let's go ahead and actually do our interview here. And then what we'll do is when we come back, we can talk a little bit more about the industry in general and that type of thing. So, all right, here we go. Joining us now, guest Steve Kelly with Argentile. Welcome to the show. Good to be here. So um, let's let's actually start with you. Tell us a little bit about your professional background. Sure. I started my career, career with Motorola in the semiconductor division, uh, eventually became a fellow there, and then eventually left and founded a company called Netsol. It was an early managed service provider. It eventually went public, but then was the first public company acquired by Cisco Systems. And I actually made the closing pitch for the acquisition discussion. So that was exciting. And yeah, that must have that must have been intense. <laughs> yes, it was intense. And then uh, when I left Cisco, we started Argentine. So and a company of which you're president. So tell us a little bit about your company, what it is, and your backstory. Well, the backstory is while we were at Cisco, we built a system for a very large bank, and it was a very large system. And that has lots of layers of software. It was kind of a $3 million project. We got all that done, and a big bug showed up in one of the layers. That caused us to rebuild it from scratch again. Most of the build was done with manual scripts that were not considered value enough to, valuable enough to keep around. So the rebuild was scripted all over again. We thought that was crazy and set out to do something to fix it. Now, I know in looking a little bit about your companies, a lot of what you're doing is the idea of saving money and time, kind of based on what you were just talking about there. Um, and before we dive in any deeper, let's talk about scripts uh, for our listeners. If anybody doesn't know what that is actually referring to, maybe you could give us just a little bit of a context and background. Sure. Um, you, almost everybody has kind of heard of the development and agile and people doing coding and writing applications. Well, when they're done with that, you use scripts to deploy those applications all over the place. 
And it's really more than 50% of the total effort because the, the scripting activity includes initial deployment and then lots of maintenance. So it goes on for a long time and it has to be redone. So really for most, com most companies, they spend more money on scripting projects than they do on application development. You know, and it would seem like with the investment, the ability to reuse scripts is kind of a no-brainer, but it doesn't doesn't seem to be the case here. So let's go ahead and talk a little bit about that. Um, you were just already kind of getting into the idea of the problem for companies. If they don't reuse scripts, they have to redo everything over and over again. Yep. So um, yeah, go ahead and comment on that if you would. I guess, the, I guess the answer to the first part of your question is it, is it has been assumed forever that scripting needs to be done by professional engineers. It's too, it, it, it involves too many different things to be automatable. The original set of uh, automation is people producing script languages and then people write scripts and put them away in their notebooks. And if they have to do the same problem again, they call them up, but they have to change them a bunch because the scripts have commands and data. <coughs> Excuse me. And the data has to be changed for each application. So they're just kind of assumed not to be reusable. Uh, what happens is they get written over and over again. New mistakes are made each time they're rewritten, and people spend countless pretty expensive hours rewriting and re-executing scripts. I'll take it a bit further. All these teams have some tribal knowledge, and when they and they don't capture that tribal knowledge when they write the scripts over again, and then somebody leaves, and the stuff in his head creates a big draft. And then finally, we're all aware that there just aren't enough STEM coders in the industry, and that problem's expected to get worse. So that's the problem. That's why we're automating the script part and uh, making it something that can save time and money by reuse. You know, that's an interesting point, too, because one of the questions we do get asked by our listeners a lot is when you have a new technology like what you're talking about or a new methodology, really. Is, is it going to cost people jobs? But in this industry, it seems like we don't have enough people anyway. So if you can take some of this stuff and automate it, it's not like you're going to lose your job. You're just going to be able to have more productivity, right? Would you agree yeah, with that? Absolutely. Plus the, the scripting thing in the middle of the night, waiting for a computer to catch up with what you just did is not the most favored work to be doing. So most of these guys would rather get this automated and they can go do the more interesting things, interesting parts of their job. So you have a product, I think, if I'm saying the word right, Ascot? Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, uh, the, I'm going to, I got to start with the other product. The main product is called Adept, and that is the automation product. Talking with big companies, we found out that they thought the automation was really interesting, but they had done so little to keep track of their scripts that they didn't know where they were. They had rights to them. It's in their contract that they have rights to them, but they were written by consultants and everybody else, and they didn't have them. So we proceeded to put together software that would, one, go find them, and two, analyze them and tell them what they were for. And that you do with machine learning and AI. Okay, so that, I mean, that's, that sounds amazing. And I think going from that standpoint... That would uh, would definitely make a lot of sense. But 
So you're looking at a methodology, you're looking at some products that you've come up with. Now, a lot of bigger companies have invested a lot of time and money into existing toolkits and that type of thing. Is there a way to work together with that or is it a complete replacement? No, it is not a replacement. Our our software works with all the common scripting languages. And if you don't have one, we can go get it. It also works on all the platforms. So we, we the term we use is we're language agnostic and platform agnostic. This is a higher level of, uh, uh, I messed that up. This is a higher level of abstraction above the scripting languages that are already out there. Okay, okay, so that makes a little more sense. So you're not reinventing the wheel, you're just making it better and making it easier to deal with. So let's dive in a little bit. What is the process? Is it easy to use? What does what does it look like? Well, you use if you don't know where your scripts are, you ask Scott to go find them and analyze them. The purpose of that is to figure out where you want to start your automation process and pick the scripts that you will use often and should make reusable first. Okay, once you've done that, the process is fairly straightforward, but we use natural language processing to, again, divide that script into its command parts and its data parts. Now, then you get to go through and decide which data parts you might want to change in a reuse, and hopefully that will get rid of most of them so that there's only a few to change in the reuse. We then save that, and it's saved with the variables in place so that they can be replaced, and then that those become libraries. You have a whole pile of libraries in your system, and then you drag and drop those libraries into an ordered workflow to go do a task. Part of what's important about that is you may use experts to build the libraries, test and perfect them, but you don't need expert coders of any kind in order to use them and build workflows. So this gives you a way to scale organizations that we don't have today, again, back to the shortage of STEM workers. So big thing in the news this year, uh, and anybody that's had a television or radio or internet on since January has heard about this, is uh, AI. Seems to be everywhere. Yep. And this is, from what I understand, different from AI. Why not use AI, and how, how does this relate, and how is it different? It, we do use AI, but we don't use it to write the scripts. So um, AI and machine learning, which are sort of the same thing, we use to categorize the scripts and figure out what they were written for after the fact, because the guy that wrote, wrote them is probably long gone. Um, then we use, as I said, deep, deep natural language processing, which is essentially AI, to go break the scripts down into pieces so we can reassemble them slightly differently into the reusable pieces. Um, the subjective AI that's in the press today really can't write the super objective scripts that are needed. These have great, precise details, lots of syntax. And, uh, and the other part of that is our low-code approach is based on the company's past experience, not everybody's past experience. And that goes back to capturing the tribal knowledge that they've learned and making it useful for themselves. All right. So let's talk war stories. You've been doing this. I'm sure you've got a couple of success stories. Let, let us know where, where this has really helped people. Okay. Well, we did a big contract for the Air Force. Uh, and, and they gave us a 
a go prove this to us sort of problem, which was to build a bunch of different hybrid cloud tasks and do them as quickly as possible. Now, first of all, hybrid cloud means, in this case, it means some of it was on Azure and some of it was on AWS. That's hard. So we went away and wrote about 200 hours worth of scripts. Actually, we had somebody else do it. And then we processed them into our tools as functional libraries. What we could then do is the Air Force could say, go build this one, go build case six. We would pull those into the workflow tool, compile them, and execute against that in less than 10 minutes. So we were compacting 200 hours down to 10 minutes and did it over and over again, nine different ways across 19 APIs. API means application programming interface. It's just the way you get to some of these machines. You know, and I, I know we're on, on radio and a podcast here, but I'm kind of making these faces as we're going along because as a programmer myself, this is music to my ears because I, th- this problem is something that isn't just a small part of the industry. It's basically everywhere you go and everything you do, you're dealing with scripts in one capacity or another. And the ability to reuse them would save so much time. In fact, I think I've had some experiences where doing the scripts and deployment and stuff actually takes longer than the actual software code base that you're dealing with. Yes. And then trying to get it set up and fixed, you're you know kind of doing it all over again because source code you can reuse, but right. this you can't. So this 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 definitely and, uh, and you have to go patch things because they had some bug appear in them or somebody hacked them. All of that is scripting work. Uh, the Air Force said that more than half of their software spend is on the scripting side of the ledger. Yeah, I think that's that's very true across the board, and it's not just rewriting the scripts, like you say, the hacking. So you have a whole testing process every time you make a change. All of that stuff has to be repeated. And if this uh, eliminates even just some of that, it would be such a such an improvement. How do people find out about your company? Where do, where do they go online or social media or anything you want to share like that? Well, certainly www.argenteel.com. You have to be able to spell Argenteel. Uh, A-R-G-A-N-T-E-A-L. Not too hard. Um and then uh, we're also doing outreach campaigns on uh, LinkedIn, and we will be doing more media campaigns. So that's one of the ways you can find us. Uh, you can always Great. contact us at info.argenteel.com. And we'll go ahead and throw that out on our social media, too. So the, if somebody uh, like me can't spell, uh, they'll have it right there in front of them. So that's, that, sounds, that sounds great. All right, um, Steve, is there anything else you want to tell us? Well, I think I was going to talk a little bit. What we're doing is called low code. And um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about low code for a second. First of all. Yeah, by all means, please. Yeah, most low code, the term is applied to building applications, building websites. And there's low code approaches to that. The low code term isn't really used in the scripting world much. And what we're trying to do is start using it. And second, I already mentioned that uh, the way we do things, we're processing the work that you as a company have already done so that you take advantage of your experience in a low-code deployment compilation. Uh, I think we've covered quite a bit. I think that, I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm, I, I, I just think this is something that could be really, really beneficial. So I think I'm actually going to be talking to you offline about this for some of my okay. projects too. So. <laughs> 
All right, Steve Kelly, thank you so much for joining us today. And I know we're going to get questions in on this. So hopefully when we do, we can have you back a couple months down the road, maybe answer some of the listeners' questions. Happy to do that. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you know, Steve, thank you for for that again. And it's definitely something that you got to focus on different points. And, And like we even talked about in the interview just a minute ago, is these kind of tools aren't going to cost jobs for programmers. It's just going to allow developers to be able to refocus on other things that are more important, you know, and and right now, as the industry sits, there's definitely a huge, huge need for programmers. That hasn't changed. AI hasn't done away with that, nor will it. You know, some of what we focus on might be a little bit different, but it's definitely not going to eliminate it. And you know, in that type of thing, we did a little research for this because, again, it's a question that's been asked by by you, our listeners, a lot on how this is going to go and where we see it going. And really, the state of the industry, programming industry in 2023, they there's a lot of different people out there that have given their opinion. This particular one comes from InfoWorld, but they're all pretty much the same in context, is that they're looking at five top industries, which are pretty much the same as they have been in past years for developers. And those are financial services, healthcare, manufacturing, the automotive sector, insurance. And again, all of these companies might not be focused on being software companies. Some may be a little more than others, but at the end of the day, they all need that part of the industry. So the bottom line of it is, is developers are still needed across the board. And, you know, to break this down a little bit, I think, and and guys chime in here with any ideas, but, you know, financial services, I think that's a no brainer. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, you the know, hackers. Some businesses need custom software. You know what I yeah. mean? Not not out oh, yeah. of the box stuff. Something that's very specific for their their need. Nuclear reactors. I, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nuclear reactors. Yeah. I, that like, definitely, I think that would be more manufacturing, maybe, or I don't know. Anyway, but <laughs> Yeah, it's manufacturing electricity. <laughs> you know, it's interesting you bring up the idea of. Uh, specialty software or custom software for businesses, because the kind of threat or perceived threat for the industry that a lot are concerned about now, this actually really isn't anything new. AI is definitely a new thing. And we even touched upon this in the interview a little bit. But the reality is, is you're dealing with a situation to break this down a little bit more, where the way that you're doing things changes. Back in the late 90s, uh, early 2000s, when I started out as a programmer, it was completely custom software. You know, you, you you dived in and you sat down and you looked at a, you needed this solution for this problem and you figured out how to get from point A to point B. And that morphed over the years between a variety of different changes going to the cloud and all this other stuff. And what we have now is the situation where you're kind of binding solutions together in a way. You still need a custom solution and you still need a programmer, but you pick up pieces where you either license or use open source software from different places to come up with that same solution and your time to getting things finished is shorter, being able to use some off the shelf tools and that type of thing. And I think looking at tools like what Steve was talking about and AI and these type of things today, it's just going to change that a little bit. Again, you still need the programmer to tie it all up, but you have more in your toolbox to do it. Yeah. I don't know. On, on your yeah. end, you know, in some of the different industries we all work in and that type of a thing, it seems like it, you know, change is not a bad thing. It's just, part of the evolution of a, of a given industry. Would you agree? Yeah. I mean, I remember back, it was a long time ago, actually, but 
and we're talking early Microsoft uh, suite, you know, um, there was like 50 different spreadsheet programs because they were all unique. Right. Just for, I mean, there was one for accounting, one for logistics, you know, and the two didn't really meet in any way. Yeah, I know. I remember that. And, you know, Gretchen, a question you brought up a couple of weeks ago was word processing, you know, word perfect versus word yeah. versus whatever. Yeah. And, did you know, we ever get an answer to that? I yeah, still we've got an answer. There is a way to do it. And we are technology. We'll be offering the tool. This is a blatant oh. plug, by the way. Uh, we are technology. We'll be offering the tool beginning the end of August to be able to do that very inexpensively and seamlessly. Cool. Um, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, when we're talking about industries that are unique, like um, I used to be, um, oh god, now I can't even think of what it's called. <laughs> I was a map maker. Is that unique, huh? <laughs> yeah, uh, a, a geological draftsman, and right, right. Um, most draftsmen were either for housing or for technical things. And you didn't have ones based on geology. And there was a lot of software that, that the, um, the engineers and the geologists would use. And sometimes I remember we had one that was originally written in French. So you oh, had nice. to kind of figure out, because it came from Canada. Quebec specifically. And so, you know, you had some strange things you had to deal with, like the language. You know? Yeah, I had an art program that was in Japanese once. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, Did I have the Japanese see. characters? Yeah. Oh, I had to geez. figure out what was going on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the whole language, the spoken language in this respect thing is something that AI has really been helping with too, because there's instant translation, which didn't exist. And you, know, you take that into source code because you comment and document your code, at least you should. And that might not always be in English either. So you're dealing with the same kind of things. And I, I know, Gretchen, a product you used to work with was something called Micrographics Designer. Uh-huh. And, yeah. uh, and I have no, no idea if that's still even out there or if it I is what it is. I don't even know if I can open up the files that I have anymore. Um, you know, I have old AutoCAD files, too. And um, like I said, old WordPerfect files as well. So I don't even know, you know, maybe artwork and, and stories are completely lost. I don't you know, know. The nice terms for this is legacy stuff, uh, files and code and things. And But you still do deal with it. I know as a programmer, I see this all the time back, uh, you know, pretty now much now database standard is SQL or various what they call NoSQL. But those are the two major things that you see out there. But not so long ago, you had Paradox, you had DBase, mm -hmm. you had all of these different things. And it was that same kind of thing. And we still have to be able to work with them, at least import them sometimes, like your WordPerfect thing. Yeah. And sometimes you can, but sometimes it is very difficult to do that. And if it's something that's not supported and hasn't been for a while, and now we're starting to see things where it was, okay, you usually could go and open some kind of a tool set that was older to be able to export or in some way interact with it. Well, a lot of these are 16-bit programs that physically don't run on modern computers anymore. Yeah. And, well, you know, even the media. I know, right, like and the, the media like itself. Like the, the yeah. tape cassettes and the big, the big cassettes and then the little discs and the big discs and, yeah. oh, my goodness. And what about more especially things like zip disk? I mean, you know, what? Yeah. I, I don't know where I'd find a zip drive today. I, I'm sure you I could. I think I have but... one. I think I have one packed away somewhere. I saw so one at a not-new shop three weeks ago. 
<laughs> right. Okay. So, so you can go to the thrift store, you know, but that's not necessarily a reliable source. And but then the other you thing have is the cables the, to hook it up yeah, with. That's what I was going to say. If it's USB, great. But if it's something that's older, like uh, remember RS two thirty two serial it's ports, the one with the big plugs. Yeah, the serial yeah. ports. Yeah, or SCSI. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, what about FireWire? Even you know, I, I haven't seen a FireWire port or a cable in years. Yeah, yeah, and it just you know these. It's just. One of the things, and you know, we we're ta- talking a little bit Alienware earlier um, before we started recording some of the changes. But my laptop, my new one, does not have an Ethernet port on it, and I'm running into things where I still need that functionality to be able to do whatever. But you know, you can so get a USB Ethernet port, fine. But if it's a format that's been not used for a long time, like if you had a fl- five and a quarter inch floppy disk, is there a USB five and a quarter inch drive out there? I don't know. I know there's there three and a half. There right. is for back. There is one I've seen it online. It's about six hundred dollars. I can imagine <laughs> because it wow. has to convert it speed wise. It basically drops right. it down, put runs it through an old another computer basically, and emulates it to be able to update it. Well, the other thing about that too is you'd also have to manufacture the five and a quarter inch drive because you can't buy those anymore. Yeah, um, you know they're not made. So it's uh, same thing like VHS tapes. So you know it's. Uh, Stuff still out there. Now, those, at least, there's companies you can usually send them to and have them converted. But there's a lot more of a standard on that than some of these other things. If you have a backup drive that used, like, DLT or something that was proprietary, good luck, you know? I mean, really, when it comes down to it. So um, it just is kind of an amazing thing. So in any event, there we are on that little tangent. This is user-friendly 2.0 going to have a guest coming up in the next couple of weeks that's going to be talking about mobile security, and we'll have more for you on that as that evolves. Until then, this is User-Friendly 2.0, keeping you safe on the cutting edge. User-Friendly 2.0 is copyright 2023, User-Friendly Media Group, Inc. All rights reserved. Views expressed on this show are those of the host and not necessarily User-Friendly Media Group, Inc. or this station. Music licensing by BMI. Hosting and technology provided by wearetechnology.com. Listen at theanswerportland.com, userfriendlyshow.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts.